Welcome to On the Edge with April Mahoney Brains. Here, this is the spot. Where the conversation is pointed, the guests are sharp, and the responses are never dull. Welcome home, Brains. There's only one requirement to hang out on the edge, is that you open your big brain and close your small mind. Did you bring your thinking caps? It's time to put them on, because the conversation starts brains you at the spot the place the location the best podcast on the planet where the conversations are pointed the guests are sharp there he is and the responses are never dull i was just in the green room uh talking to dr keith stokes from jackson mississippi he is a medical doctor but it's a it's a, a twist to it He's not only practicing in the hospital, he's been a former chief of staff. I'm going to let him run down his resume because it's unbelievable. But now what he's doing is he's working with clinicians, uh, medical billers, uh, and other individuals to really understand the coding of how to document a person's medical records, what their needs are. Because again, it's all in the language brains and you don't know what you don't know. How are we best able to get the services that we need? The hospitals get paid for the services that they provide without understanding the terminology and the benefits. So this is a very different type of interview. This is very informational. Uh, This might not be your uh, area of genius, but that's okay. You can take this information and have an educated, informed conversation with your physician. Maybe you're a senior citizen and you are uh, at an assisted living facility, you need more benefits. So this information can apply to you, okay? But I really wanna focus on the people that are going to be using this because Dr. Stokes has uh, really come up with an amazing organization and business to really help people get what they need when it comes to healthcare. It's very confusing. So let's welcome him to the show. How are you, Dr. Stokes? Hello, April. I'm doing well. And hello, Brains. Hey. Now, did I explain that correctly? Pretty much so. It's okay. a little more nuanced, but we'll get to it as we go along. All right. Well, that's good. So tell my Brains how you show up in the world. I am a physician by trade and training. I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, originally. I graduated from Jackson State University. I went to medical school after college at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, uh, medical college uh, in, in Nashville, Tennessee. So when I was growing up, both my parents uh, went to law school. My sister is a is an attorney, and service to our community was one of the things that was really instilled in us. Once I got to Meharry, once again they instilled. Listen, when you get this information and you become a physician, we need you to take this back to the communities where you came or communities that really need you. So once I finished uh, residency at University of Mississippi Medical Center in Family Medicine, I went to practice medicine in a rural community in Holmes County, Mississippi. And I've done primarily work in rural communities throughout the state of Mississippi, both in hospitals, clinics, as a medical director, uh, as a chief of staff of, of a hospital, in all sorts of areas. And through that training and experience, I came upon something called clinical documentation improvement. And with that, that helped me to really understand, um, getting that knowledge and training helped me to understand the business of medicine and the healthcare industry 
And that comes back to what you were talking about before is how important documentation is and how that leads to both coding and reimbursement in the healthcare field. So let's see, where do we begin? Give us a scenario of how this has been misunderstood. So it's misunderstood in several different ways and I'll give you a couple of different scenarios. So let's say you went to the hospital and you were short of breath. Upon evaluation in the emergency room, it was determined that you were really experiencing some significant respiratory issues and needed to be admitted to the hospital. So what diagnosis would suggest that you needed to be admitted to the hospital? That is where confusion can lie. So sometimes when you're in the hospital, you're actually not admitted to the hospital. You may be in the hospital, but still be an outpatient. That's what we call observation. Okay. Other patients in the hospital are actually admitted to the hospital. That's what we call inpatient. So the difference between being observation and inpatient can have financial implications, as well as implications about where you go when you leave the hospital. So let's take this patient. Hospitalized, presents to the ER, has what we call an oxygen level of say 83%. One doctor may say this patient has respiratory insufficiency. Another doctor says this patient has acute respiratory failure with hypoxemia. Those are medical terms, but the acute respiratory failure with hypoxemia is a more specific terminology that shows that this patient needs to be admitted to the hospital. Not only that, but it may also show that the patient needs and requires oxygen supplementation chronically once they leave the hospital. Mm. Now, if you're a physician who doesn't really understand that or know that information, you may just leave respiratory insufficiency on that chart. So when it's time for the patient to leave the hospital, then the insurance company may say, well, we don't believe that this patient needs or has a medical necessity for oxygen based off of the documentation. So therefore the patient can't get oxygen that they actually really need. Does that make sense? No, but I mean, yes, but no. And I mean, I just think that, again, it's in the language. Yes. Okay. Give us another scenario. Another scenario is this. Uh, let's say uh, you present to the hospital with congestive heart failure. Now, congestive heart failure is a serious medical condition, but in and of itself, it's a chronic medical problem. That means that somebody with congestive heart failure does not qualify for hospitalization. However, if you're found to have acute systolic congestive heart failure, you would qualify as that being your principal diagnosis. So you see how the term acute makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Those nuances in language is what clinical documentation is all about. And so as physicians, sometimes the way we think about it is not necessarily what the diagnosis is, but what the treatment is. That's called the intensity of service. So if a patient requires oxygen, if they need to be intubated, if they need to undergo a cardiac catheterization, then those intense services seem as though the patient should automatically be admitted to the hospital. But that's not the way it works. It's a combination of the diagnosis and the intensity of service that combine demonstrate the medical necessity of the patient being hospitalized. So that term medical necessity is a big deal because without the correct, appropriate, and specific diagnosis, you can't really demonstrate that medical necessity. Wow. 
that's so unfair. I mean, it. What is the, what is the reason for that? I mean, I don't think it's exclusion. I don't want to jump that far off the train and say that you know they're trying to exclude people. But why is that verbiage so critical when someone will go back and they've been to the house, the, the emergency room two or three times for the same thing, they have not put that verbiage in, and they're denied services, or their insurance doesn't cover it. So, and that's why it's important is because the nuance in language may not necessarily deny a specific service, but it may prevent it from being covered. And the reason is this, from an insurance standpoint or a payment standpoint, medicine is normally paid for by third parties. That means that uh, you don't pay uh, for healthcare like you would for your groceries. Meaning when you go to the grocery store, you get your carton of eggs and you immediately pay. In medicine, we generally pay an insurance company who then pays the healthcare provider. So from the insurance company standpoint, they need to make sure that before they pay the healthcare provider, that the provider performs services that were needed, necessary and medically appropriate. Mm. Because if they just pay because they receive a claim or a bill, then there is a chance that they're paying for services that weren't needed or necessary, therefore increasing the, the cost of healthcare unnecessarily. So the thought is not a bad thought, it's just how do we then make sure that we implement this system in such a way that the physicians and the clinicians understand their part in it. Unfortunately, this is not really taught very well in medical school or residency. What we primarily focus on, which we should primarily focus on, is diagnosing and treating patients' illnesses. But once we get out into the real world, that is where the business of medicine and this documentation becomes increasingly important. Okay, all right. So now let's take it to phase two. You've went to the doctor, the bill is now going to be processed. What would a, a coder, because I know some people that do medical billing for dentistry and medical uh, as a third party biller, how do they help support the client and the doctor in this. I know understanding working with you, but is there certain, cause I know when I tried to do it once upon a time, you do have to know terminology. Medical yes. terminology is a must, is a must. Yes. But where do they fall into this? So where the coder falls in is once the documentation is complete, once the physician or nurse practitioner or physician assistant has completed their documentation, sometimes there is information that's a little equivocal. The coder's job is to go in and not extrapolate or extract, but look at the specific language that is used and then apply the medical codes to those. It's called ICD-10 now. And so they are trained specifically in understanding all of those codes and there are thousands of them. There are thousands of them. And so they have to really understand where these codes actually work and where they don't work. Now they can use computer assisted systems with that, but you still have to have an intense amount of knowledge. And see physicians, we aren't trained in the coding part. So the coders essentially translate the medical language into codes that are then used for reimbursement. Now that is where uh, our system is different. Our um, documentation is used not only for making sure that people understand what is going on medically, clinically, but it's also used uh, for reimbursement. So it's both a communication tool and a reimbursement tool. 
So for physicians, most times we consider it a communication tool. We are documenting for other physicians primarily who come and look at the charts after us so that they know what we meant, what happened to the patient, what's going on with them, and what our thoughts are in terms of what treatment the patient needs and what diagnoses they had. That's the way physicians think about it. But because it's also a communication tool, once we write whatever we write or document whatever we document, there is another person or a group of people who then take that information and use it to form reimbursement. So there can definitely be a breakdown between, you know, between cradle to grave, no pun intended. Uh, Wow. And it's a big breakdown is because we tend to work in silos. And like I said, physicians don't really understand the coding because we're not trained in that part of it. And so because we're not, then the coders, they can't, they aren't trained in medicine. So sometimes they can't really understand what the physicians mean when they're documenting, because of course we speak in jargon that other physicians understand, but anybody who wasn't trained in medicine may not understand. And again, that word acute, you know, I, if yeah. it's not on the actual chart or the file, when I get the, the documentation to code and bill, I can't insert that. No, you cannot. Exactly. And so that's why it's important. That's what we do with DocuComp is that we help physicians understand why these nuances in language, why this documentation, why being specific is so important to tell the story of your patient. And so we try to do it in such a way that makes it not more work or harder work, but teaches you how to do it in a way that's more efficient and effective, but concise so that it doesn't add a burden to you, but takes the burden away from you to teach you how to do this in such a way that makes your day easier. And since I found, um, I was trained in clinical documentation by Dr. Betty Bibbins, what it allowed me to do was really re-energize my practice of medicine. It helped me to reattain the fulfillment that I felt. The reason that I went to medical school was to be fulfilled by helping people in their time of need. Mm -hmm. And for a while, I had become disillusioned with it. But once I found this, it brought that back to me. So that's what I'm doing now is trying to help other clinicians really who are struggling. Because right now, for a lot of people, medicine is a struggle. They feel burdened by insurance companies. They feel burdened by electronic health records. Sometimes you feel as though your computer is attached to you and you have to deal with that more than you can it's, deal with your patients. It's te- well, you know, and then too, on the patient side, it's telemedicine. Number one, we go in and Google everything. We think that we know, you know what's, what's going on and we don't because there's a lot of different nuances. Um, but then also on the flip side, this can raise the revenue considerably for a, clin- uh, for a clinician or a doctor if you get it right because you won't have claims coming back, kicking back, and you will be able to provide top-level service and services to the clients that are most at need. Because we went in, me and Mr. Magnificent, to check our uh, Social Security. Medicare, we're going on to a, a seminar in a, a couple of days for Medi-Cal and Medicaid. It's so confusing. We have the best medical insurance, TRICARE, but we still have to purchase Medi-Cal, pay that. I don't know what the, one insurance says they cover it. Then the other one said they don't cover it. Then when you go to the hospital, they say, okay, well, whatever the one don't cover, you have secondary. But if you have secondary, what is your primary? It is a dance and you're sick. You are sick. Yeah. You don't have time to do that. And doctors yeah. are stressed out. On an average, they get to see a patient, what, 15, 20 minutes? And you got 1,500 patients? Minutes. 15 to 20 minutes. And so physicians, a lot of times don't really understand the insurance industry either. 
And that is where physicians and patients are in the same boat is that really understanding what insurances will pay for, what they won't pay for. It's something that, like I said, is not taught well in medical school, but I'll give you this. We have Medicare, we have Medicaid, and those are different things. Medicare is um, a government federal program. Medicaid is a federal and state program, but in Medicare, we have four different types. All right, we have Medicare Part A, which is for hospitals, Part B, which they call medical, but you can think of it like it pays for clinics and your clinic visits and those sorts of things. Part D, which people understand pays for medic medications, and then Part C is Medicare Advantage, right? And so that's very complex to really keep up with those things. And then you add Medicaid to that, which is what Medi-Cal is and those kind of things. And so it becomes hard for patients to really understand what their services are, what they will pay for. And all of these different types of Medicare and Medicaid, you also have to be credentialed with these insurance companies. And now with, Medica and now with Medicare Part C, you add private insurance companies who administer the Medicare program. Mm -hmm. and, and on top of that, you're sick. I keep going back to that. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know that. Or you are a senior citizen or a single parent that doesn't have the support of someone else. You don't understand what this is and your liability. I went to the ER. Luckily, I had insurance because I was there for eight hours and I think the bill was like $35,000. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Yeah. I, and I will say something, uh, you know, uh, my brains might get a little crunchy with me, but it is what it is. We have people that come to the United States for whatever reason that are undocumented uh, here in California. They just passed a bill that you automatically are going to get medical. And I don't want people to be sick, but I don't want them riding on my back when I can't get it myself. When you go to a hospital now, is it automatic that they will service you? Is that a law? I thought that was like a a, a law. Yeah. You, if you show up at in an Thailand. emergency room. If you have an emergency. If you have an emergency and you show up to an emergency room, then they have to uh, treat you appropriately. You can go to an emergency room without having an emergency. You can say I have a headache or you can say I have a mm, toe ache. That doesn't make it an emergency, right? But if you go to an emergency room and they triage you, that's why they triage you first, and they determine that, hey, this is an emergency, then they must treat you. So explain that, the term triage. Triage is when you go to the hospital and you go to the emergency room and they take your insurance and then they say, okay, a nurse is going to come and get you. And then they're going to take you around. They're going to take your vital signs and they're going to ask you, what brings you in to see us today? Okay. Normally, in most emergency rooms that I've been to, once you get your blood pressure checked and they ask you those questions and they find out, hey, your blood pressure is okay, you're not, uh, you don't have any vital signs that are unstable, they'll send you back to the waiting room and say, okay, we'll call you when your turn comes. Okay. Which is different than going to the emergency room in an ambulance where you're having some extraordinary event or emergency event where you're at home with chest pain and they bring you directly through the ambulance, take you straight to the room, and then you're seen there. All right. So there, there are differences in how you're treated and where you're treated because they want to, in an emergency room situation, make sure that what you're having is an emergency because the triage means we're going to see the people who are most in need of care first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get to the other people after that. Now, when we talk about health insurance and, and 
everything in America, it must be understood that healthcare is one of our largest expenditures. Mm -hmm. And from a government standpoint, a government pays for a great deal of it through Medicaid and Medicare. It's about 50-50 between uh, private insurance and government insurance. And so from the government standpoint, these expenses are rising far greater than inflation. And so what they're trying to do is determine and put certain programs together to try to decrease the cost, what they call bend the curve. And so a lot of programs exist for these reasons. These programs that exist always have different rules and regulations when you're dealing with government programs. And so as physicians, sometimes we're so focused on what our primary purpose is taking care of patients that we aren't really keeping up to date with those changes, those nuances and regulations. And that is where a problem can exist. And so just like patients don't know, a lot of times physicians don't know. Sometimes people feel that physicians should know this is their industry. But like I said, what we're focused on as clinicians is clinical medicine. But what we're talking about right now is not clinical medicine, is really documentation and reimbursement. But they go together because once you treat the patient and you save their lives, then you hope that you can get paid for it. And sometimes (laughs) that's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult because if you don't have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed, then you will get denials for the payment. And especially like, you know, you took a leap of faith and went and started working in a very rural community, you know, that don't have the the backing of a big uh, corporation, you know? Yeah. So I I get that. And then companies are pulling back considerably on the amount of the cost share because they pick up a big burden of that. And I understand because you work for me, does that, automatically obligate me to take care of you and your your four kids and your wife you Mm. know it's it's very difficult and it's very expensive so because healthcare becomes more expensive it becomes more expensive because we we get um it's what we call the miracles of modern medicine we always find new ways to help people to sustain people's lives and new innovations come along and so when they come along it costs money but it doesn't necessarily improve the quality of the care of the patient and that is where the rubber meets the road so what insurance companies and hospitals and everything are now wanting to pay for is not only services that are provided which is kind of fee for service but services that are provided that are shown to improve the care of the patient what we call value-based medicine or quality of care so that's what in the r d area and also uh like clinical trials and, and those type of things yeah. The more newer medicines that come along, the more expensive those medications are going to be. The newer treatments that come along that can actually help sustain people's lives or treat cancer and things like that, they're going to be much more expensive. And so because of that, the cost of healthcare always rises. But from a government standpoint, they're trying to look at, okay, we're paying more or are some of the things that we're paying for not worth the payment because the quality of the care is not there, even though we're paying for things, we need to be able to demonstrate and show beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, through certain metrics that what we're paying for is making patients better. Right. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people around the world, a lot of clinicians, uh, nurses, and everyone is talking about, oh, the socialized medicine in Canada or Australia, everybody has medical care. But when I talk to those individuals, they say, you might be able to get in and see a physician but it might be six months before you can see a specialist. So there's yeah. a trade-off there. And they're paying, you know, hefty. 
out of their checks, out of their government issues for these things. So it, it's a double-edged sword. So where are we at and what can we do? So there are certain things that we can do. Number one, where we are is this. Our healthcare system is moving from a fee-for-service model to what's called a value-based model. So what does that mean exactly? So our fee-for-service model is more like what traditional Medicare was and what your normal insurance is. You go see your doctor, they charge you a certain percentage or a certain amount of money for seeing them, and then they charge each patient for that. So when uh, traditional Medicare thinks about that, then what they tend to do every year is decrease the amount that they're going to pay the providers or the physicians for each service that they provide. So let's say for you, for instance, April, let's say that on top of what you make, the government also said, we'll pay you $100 for every show that you do, right? And so you say, okay, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do 100 shows this year. The government's gonna pay me $100, that's $10,000. And then next year they come back and say, well, look, we overran our budget. We're gonna now pay you 1% less than we paid you last year. Now, if you still wanna make the same amount of money, what would you do? You would just work and do an extra show, mm -hmm. right? So that tends to be what happens. So now, that, so that's why the Medicare cuts don't necessarily work because you can just increase the number of uh, cases that you performed or increase the number of people that you saw. Mm -hmm. So now they've done a different thing where in 1996, they started Medicare Advantage. And with Medicare Advantage, what they're doing is contracting to private insurance companies saying, look, we're gonna give you a certain amount of money per month. That amount is gonna be determined by how sick your patients are. And then it's going to be a lump sum of money that we give you. And with that lump sum, it's your job to take care of these patients, to administer this program. All right. And so whatever money you're able to keep, meaning don't spend, that's your profit. But if you happen to spend more than you bring in, that's just your loss. Now, there's some issues and problems with that. All right. There's some unintended consequences, but that is one way the government is intending to bend that cost curve. When you talk about employers, some employers are saying, look, we're not going to pay health insurance companies. We're going to self-fund. We're going to hire an outside company to come into our system, our job, and then create a clinic there and take care of our patients. And we're going to pay them to do that so that our, not our patients, but our employees, so they don't go out and have to take a day off work or two days off work to go to the clinic and then go to the pharmacy. We'll have all that inside. So, of course, this is America. We have innovation. And so healthcare is one of the most innovative spaces in our country right now. But as we make that transition, everybody's not involved. And for physicians, a lot of times it's burdensome because it's such a change from the way it was when we trained on how to practice medicine. And so part of my job- It could be a huge liability. Yeah, it could be. It could be a huge yeah. liability because again, you gotta have insurance and license and equipment and, and all these things all uh, separate from the hospital on an outside place. And, you know, they passed the law where, and I agree to a, to a point where they are, um, you know, there's limitations on malpractice. Look, medicine is not a perfect science. That's why they say you're practicing medicine. You're doing the very best that you can to diagnose based upon your experience and what you've been through and things happen. But I had a situation with a friend of mine went in for uh, a hysterectomy, they nicked her kidney. So now she's got all kinds of kidney problems when her kidney wasn't a problem to begin with. But the cold part about it was, it was done by a robot. 
She didn't even know that the robotics are they are they supposed to disclose that? So it, it's a lot of things that go on when you're you know under the knife and you unconscious that you're not aware of. And so coming back and trying to recap that, get paid for it, get it coded. This is an ongoing challenge. And Dr. Keith, thank you so much, really, because you've explained it to me, the layman. So now when I go in, I can have this. I am going to share this with every healthcare provider, nurse that I know, so that they can at least have an informed uh, conversation and be able to come to you, take your classes, take your seminars, work with you, uh, and um, DocuDocs. DocuComp. DocuComp. It is D-O-C-U-C-O-M-P. So our website is www.docucompllc.com. You can contact me at um, kstokes at docucompllc.com. That's my email. If you have any questions or concerns or uh, anything you want to talk to me about, and if you go to our website, we will have a, a link there where you can log on to my schedule to get an appointment with me to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation and we can do a Zoom call as well. Now, do you uh, teach courses? Do you have like yes. online courses? Okay, good. Yes. So we have online certification in clinical documentation, improvement and integrity. We also have a certification for physician advising as well as denial, avoidance, and appeal management. So one of the things that you talked about earlier was when the coding and the documentation doesn't coincide, then you're likely to receive a denial for your claim from an insurance company. And so we help you to figure out how to avoid those denials so you can get paid appropriately for the services that you provided to your patients. Uh, also, um, I was going to ask you, this is, I don't know, this, this is an ongoing challenge because the rules and regulations are a moving target. Yeah. Do you also provide like refreshers to keep people up and current as to what is going on and the ever changing, you know, ever changing structure of healthcare and coding? Because you know, come January first, everything changes all over again. Sometimes it's January, sometimes it's October. So we don't teach coding; we teach documentation. But yes, we always have updates on our courses. So every year we have to update because everything changes every year, meaning the codes change. The regulations change. There are always different rules that change throughout the year. It's not just a one-time thing like as the year changes, oh, now there are new changes. No, it changes throughout the year because once I, once again, these are thousands, tens of thousands of uh, codes. And so there's no way one person could keep up with all of that. And so the government tries to help you, but we also have to continuously train. But that's one thing about being a physician is that we are continuous learners. And so this is something that we just have to add to our armamentarium. But and this is a once place again, where I could see that AI could be extremely valuable. And that's another way and where it be, uh, it's it, changing. It could be a partner. It could definitely be a partner yeah. to help, you know, you go in and ask specific questions. How do I code this or how do I do this? And it works hand in hand because you have that information. This is not just your state of Mississippi. This no. covers, this is nationwide. This is nationwide. And there's an industry for it. People understand it, but a lot of doctors aren't familiar. And of course, patients aren't. You don't really learn about it until, like you said, you run into an issue. And then it's a problem where something won't get paid for, you really don't understand. And then when you go to look for help, who can help you? Well, a lot of times there are not a lot of places or people who understand this information in such a way that they can really help you to solve your problem. Because everybody's problem is going to be different. 
everybody's not going to have the same issue. I'm a clinician. I focus primarily on helping physicians because I believe that through doing this, I was able to change my approach to medicine. I practice with patients who live with HIV. I practice with uh, treating transgender patients. I also practice as a hospitalist as well as a clinical medical provider. I'm able to do that because I really understand the value that I bring to the healthcare industry. And I know that by training other physicians in uh, what I've learned, they can do the same thing and regain that fulfillment in the practice of medicine. Well, let me tell you, this was, again, like I said, this was a very different interview for On the Edge. It was so informative. I'm gonna go back and look at it, not once, not twice, and I'm gonna share it with everybody that I know because it's valuable information, just the basic things, even if we don't understand the coding and the vernacular, the process, how it goes through, what each insurance company can and cannot do. If you have the information brains, you're powerful. You can go in, don't think that you know it all, but at least you can have an intelligent, intelligent conversation with your physician once you come out of the anesthesia. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Keith. You are so good at what you do. Thank you so much, April. I'm going to go and I'm going to um, put all of his information at the back. Share this worldwide, Brains, because this can springboard. This is something that I'm sure that Americans aren't the only ones that are impacted by it. I need you to love, like, share, and subscribe. Promise me that you will love, like, share, and subscribe. And try to take care of yourself. So you don't need the service. <laughs> Talk to you later, Dr. Keith. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you, Brains. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.